This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. I'm happy that you have joined us here for our solidarity event. My name is Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore, and I am the moderator this evening. I want to say a few things about why it is we're gathered here, and then we will turn swiftly to this evening's speakers. I want to thank the American Studies Association and Haymarket Books for co-sponsoring this event. And I'm particularly grateful to Haymarket for supporting dialogue and debate around the planet. And thank everybody who has joined in. We understand about 2,000 people uh, signed up. We'll be talking this evening about education. Now, education indicates many things to many people. And one thing that it means quite often, although not always, is schools, including colleges and universities. Schools are workplaces where people make and share knowledge that helps learners understand the world. Anything from physics or chemical engineering to the social sciences and history to languages and literature to the many specialized professions from teacher to nurse, from lawyer to therapist, and not least to the philosophical and expressive forms, visual, sonic, and lively arts, humans invent and manipulate to find or give meaning to what cannot otherwise be satisfactorily explained. People have fought to determine who teaches, who learns, what, how, and to what end. This struggle is not contemporary and seems to have shadowed and caused shifts in all systems and institutions of learning. But today's overlapping and interlocking political, economic, cultural, climate, and health crises compel us to focus as we will this evening. In the context of crisis, of these crises, is education a public good, as I think it should be, or is it dynamite, which perhaps it should be as well? 50 years ago, an advisor to Richard M. Nixon and Ronald Reagan said out loud, that the United States was producing an educated proletariat. He concluded, that's dynamite. Why did he think so? Well, if we look around the decolonizing world throughout the 20th century, but particularly in the middle of the 20th century, we see explosion after explosion as people carefully educated to become members of the professional managerial class or people carefully isolated who taught themselves how to analyze, understand and change the world did something else with what they learned and turned learning and teaching toward different ends. In the ensuing half century, we have seen, we have experienced the intensification 
and legislation of organized abandonment, whether of schools or hospitals, unions or prisons, jails, and the consolidation and expansion of organized violence necessary to shape some of the effects that abandonment produces. On the one hand, donor-driven improvements privately allocate the stolen social wage to certain kinds of experiments and emphases in schools and colleges at the expense of many. But at the same time that we are subjected to the whims of donors, we are also subjected to the weight of debt. Tonight, a number of people who have been thinking very broadly and deeply about these questions have joined together in order to answer the call that was put out by our comrade and colleague, Garrett Felber, and his um, uh, comrades in study and struggle in Mississippi and beyond, so that we can talk about what it means in this moment to practice solidarity. Without further ado, I'd like to call on Garrett Felber to share some thoughts with us tonight. Thank you so much, Ruthie, for, for those introductory remarks and for everyone for being here tonight. Um, I'd like to start by extending my deepest gratitude to the outpouring of support from comrades and colleagues and students and friends in this moment. Uh, the breadth of that groundswell shows that the work we do is never in isolation. Just as so many of you have been in solidarity with me, I'd like to express my own solidarity with various efforts such as UC Cops Off Campus, the GEO abolitionist grad strike this fall at the University of Michigan, my former grad union, Northwestern University Community Not Cops, and Decriminalize UW at the University of Washington, to name just a few of the important frontline abolitionist efforts being led by students across the country. I'd also like to express my gratitude to Haymarket Books and the American Studies Association, our two co-sponsors of this event. Haymarket has supported our work with Study and Struggle this fall through a critical conversation series. And in particular, they stepped up as our new fiscal sponsor after the University of Mississippi made it known in October that they would no longer tolerate this work. So I'm thrilled to be in struggle with an independent socialist press that's publishing some of the best work out there and with the ASA, which has long been a home to radical engaged scholarship for many of us, and the, whose executive committee put out a beautiful statement of solidarity today. Most immediately this evening, I'm indebted to the intellectual giants and generous and gracious friends who agreed to be part of this program today. My work and spirit of truth-telling with which I do it owes a huge debt to all of them. So while this particular panel was prompted by my termination without due process, I recognize that the solidarity expressed is not and should not be restricted to my case. Although these attacks are often administered individually, they should be understood as a structural widespread and ongoing attack on our activism. I'm not alone in challenging the university nor suffering the consequences for those actions. That burden mostly falls upon students and contingent faculty, nor am I even alone at my own university, where my comrade and co-organizer Cam Kalish was removed by police and targeted by neo-Confederates, 
or my colleague James Thomas has been targeted for years, most recently by the state auditor who subpoenaed his class documents and is attempting to fine him $2,000 for participating in the scholar strike this fall. And where even our university ombuds was disappeared last week when he refused to turn over confidential information he'd received. I am not alone. A crucial component of this attack to me seems to be that it seeks to undermine the coalition and intellectual labor which connects campuses to marginalized communities, whether inside or outside prisons. The university will tolerate carceral studies and black studies as fields of inquiry or incarcerated and criminalized people as subjects, but it will not tolerate the implications of that work. That work demands that folks at the center of social movements and knowledge production be those who are criminalized and incarcerated. That universities cannot simultaneously teach students in prisons while profiting from the PIC, or teach classes about the history of mass incarceration while gentrifying communities and policing them with occupying armies. And that anti-racism must be anti-capitalist if it is to be anti-racist at all. As Robin Kelly wrote in a line that I return to regularly, love and study cannot exist without struggle and struggle cannot solely occur inside the refuge we call the university. So it's no coincidence that our program Study and Struggle, which supports radical study groups in Mississippi prisons around the themes of abolition and immigrant justice, and which formed out of the deep crisis happening inside state prisons and in response to the largest ice raid in US history is at the heart of this retaliation. My own introduction to this work began with research and scholarship on the Nation of Islam's prison organizing. And while I was writing my dissertation about the NOI's organizing inside, which included amongst um, their activities, study groups on black history, I was also beginning to facilitate a racial justice reading group at a minimum security prison in Oregon where we built a freedom library, created a newsletter, and did mutual aid and support work when our comrades got out. So it quickly became clear to me as a graduate student that to do the work of black studies and carceral studies, especially for scholars within the university, it must be done in solidarity and collaboration with those who are most impact impacted by the systems that we write and study. As my dear friend, Stevie Wilson, quoted Angela Davis in a message of solidarity to me today, Whenever you conceptualize social justice struggles, you will always defeat your own purposes if you cannot imagine the people around you whom you are struggling as equal partners. So Study and Struggle is a collective project that's made up of the work of dozens of folks, students, professors, grassroots organizers, our ASL interpretation and Spanish translation teams, our editors, imprisoned folks working on zines such as Stevie, and the hundreds of comrades with whom we study and organize in Mississippi. So I think for tenure track faculty in particular, it's important that while we don't individualize my case, we do think about how it is specific and what it can tell other people in these positions. And part of what I brought to study and struggle was a position of relative power. And the attack on that position of relative power to undermine is a, an attempt to undermine study and struggle as a whole. So I'll end there and turn it over to my brilliant friends and comrades. And I'd like to thank everyone who made a solidarity donation during the last week to our holiday drive with the REACH Foundation. It allowed us to surpass our goal of $25,000 for toiletry packs for incarcerated people in Mississippi. 
to everyone who donated to the event today, all of which goes to study and struggle for commissary, books to people inside, our translation teams and outside folks who are doing the daily organizing and letter writing that is so crucial to sustaining our efforts. And lastly, to everyone for all the kind messages of support from colleagues and graduate students and to all the people who shared, unfortunately, their two similar stories that reminded me that I am not alone in this. So thank you. Thank you so much, Garrett. I also want to thank um, the two people who are providing ASL interpretation for us, Gloshonda Lawyer and Mandy Welly, and the person who is doing closed captioning, whose name I did not get, I apologize, but somebody will text it to me before our event is over. The next person we'll hear from is Dylan Rodriguez, who is past president of the American Studies Association, and he is coming to us by way of pre-recorded video. So let's hear from Dylan. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Dylan Rodriguez. I'm a professor at the University of California. And alongside panelist Kianga Yamada-Taylor, I'm a member of the inaugural 2020 class of Freedom Scholars. I want to help introduce today's discussion by speaking proudly as the president of the American Studies Association to announce that its leadership body, the executive committee, has decided unanimously, without equivocation and without apology, to support Professor Garrett Felber, Dr. Garrett Felber, our colleague, our cherished fellow ASA member, and our friend, at a moment in which his employment is under attack by the University of Mississippi, or as some of y'all call it, Ole Miss. Some folks will say that this attack on Dr. Felber is an attack on academic freedom. Well, yeah, of course it is. I would only add with emphasis that this is also an attack on the precious, collective, community-created infrastructures of critical thought, socially engaged research, and community-accountable teaching that people in our fields of study have worked to build over the last 20 or so years. The forthcoming statement from the American Studies Association reads in part as follows, that Professor Felber's history of principled reasoned critique of Ole Miss's embedded systemic racism, as well as his ethical analysis of the institutionalized relationships between the University of Mississippi's administration and its powerful benefactors and donors, demonstrate the kind of intellectual courage that the ASA cherishes. The university should embrace and engage this criticism rather than attempt to undermine and expel its messenger. In addition to supporting the four demands that have already been articulated by a widely circulating letter that has at this point well over 5,000 signatories, yours truly included, the ASA, ASA Executive Committee endorses the call to refuse invitations to speak at conduct professional service for, or otherwise be associated with the University of Mississippi until this egregious attack on Dr. Felber, our scholarly community, and rudimentary principles of academic freedom is reversed. I want to say thank you to Haymarket and give a special shout out to past ASA President Scott Kurashige and past ASA President Ruth Wilson-Gilmore for putting on today's event. I'll be online. I'm here right now. I'll be listening. I'll be studying. And I'm ready to move with all of you all. I'm looking forward to this. Okay. Thank you so much, Dylan Rodriguez, for sending us that message of solidarity. The next person that we will hear from is Elizabeth Hinton, my colleague at Yale, formerly at Harvard. Elizabeth. 
Thank you, ASA and Haymarket Books, for organizing this incredibly important panel. Um, thank you, the great Ruth, Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, for that great introduction and for moderating our discussion. Um, I'm really honored to have the opportunity to, to speak and thank all of you for, for coming and listening. So I've known Garrett since we were both in graduate school some 15 years ago, back when W was president and when we were both young and wide-eyed. And let me just emphasize for those who might attempt to discredit him that my dear friend and comrade Garrett Felber is a person of exceptional character and exceptional ethics. Garrett is a person whose actions and politics are rooted in love, and this love grounds everything he does. He is one of the most courageous people I know. And on top of it, on top of his commendable activism, Garrett is an exceptional scholar. I've invited Garrett to speak to my classes every single semester since I started teaching at the University of Michigan. And I always tell my students, and I'm going to tell you today to Garrett's great embarrassment, that hands down Garrett Felber is the finest and most thorough researcher I have ever encountered. His relentless pursuit of archives, of information, and of truth was inspiring to me as we worked together as part of Manny Mirable's Malcolm X Project. Garrett was Manning's right-hand person, his top researcher, until the day he transitioned to the other side. And Garrett continued to carry the project after Manning's death. I tell people that it was Garrett who identified the person who actually pulled the trigger and assassinated Malcolm X. I learned so much from, from him, and my own work benefited immensely as a result. And I've been praising Garrett's scholarship for years, nearly a decade, before his groundbreaking Those Who Know Don't Say was released. Beginning with his important June 2018 article, Shades of Mississippi, which appeared in the flagship Journal of American History, Garrett has made critical interventions in 20th century U.S. history. Those who know don't say fundamentally changes the way we understand the foremost struggles of the 1950s and 60s. Thanks to Garrett, we now know that activists launched sustained campaigns against police brutality and incarceration, both inside and outside of prison laws, walls, alongside what we think of as classical civil rights struggles. His work also provides a way to consider the NOI, not as the apolitical violent group in which it is often characterized, but as an important force in shaping civil rights and black power. Garrett's notion of the dialectics of discipline or the relationship between collective black resistance, often in the form of nonviolent direct action protests and escalating punitive state rep repression, helps us make sense of the simultaneous rise of militant black protest and new disciplinary mechanisms within prisons themselves, such as the increased reliance on solitary confinement and maximum security prisons in the final decades of the 20th century and beyond. So let me underscore, Garrett's work pushes us to think carefully and critically about radical politics and the devastating consequences of the American carceral state in ways that are truly remarkable. Those who know don't say is a force to be reckoned with in a number of fields. And somehow, between his work for study and struggle, organizing one of the most important national conferences to take place on mass incarceration to date, and uncovering the racist history and police abuses at the University of Mississippi, Garrett is working on two other books, one tentatively titled The Norfolk Plan, The Community Prison in the Age of Mass Incarceration, and an edited collection of the writings of Martin Sostre, a key but overlooked figure in the black power and prisoners' rights movements. I don't think Garrett actually sleeps. So I could go on about Garrett's scholarship, but I say all this to emphasize that he is a model for all of us who are employed by academic institutions and who work on issues of racial justice. As academics, we can't just be out there in the streets and organizing and supporting the communities we care about. We also have to put the research in, the work in. We must also support the movement by being thorough and thoughtful in our research and in our writing. Garrett doesn't cut corners and neither should we. 
And just as Garrett is a model for us all, as we've been discussing, Garrett's case is a warning for us all. One of the themes of my own research on the carceral state is the disconnect between rhetoric and reality. Lyndon Johnson, Bill Clinton, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, they talk about their stated commitment to justice and equality, their support of civil rights. But what was the impact of their policies, right? What are they actually doing? Where is the money actually going? How are they exacerbating the harm they purport to be concerned about? And universities are no different. Garrett and I quickly confronted this disconnect as we organized the landmark Beyond the Gates, the Past and Future of Prison Education at Harvard Conference during the 2017-18 academic year, when Garrett was a fellow at the Charles Warren Center. Back in 2011, following the release of a report on the forgotten connections between Harvard and slavery, former President Drew Faust had remarked, quote, Harvard must do its part to undermine the legacies of race and slavery that continue to divide our nation. And obviously one of the most tangible legacies of slavery is mass incarceration, and we attempted to hold Harvard accountable. Harvard still does not offer college and prison programs after years of pressing the university to do so and, and being given the runaround by the administration time and time again. And it's one of the reasons why I left. It's one of the reasons that other prominent faculty working on mass incarceration left. These universities claim to champion diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and they claim to want to do their part by addressing legacies of slavery. They send emails to the university community decrying police violence and demanding justice for George Floyd. And they think that supporting our research is enough. They think that having token abolitionists or racial justice champions on their faculty is enough, that sponsoring conferences is enough, and then they pat themselves on the back. They want to cry when Brian Stevenson comes to campus and talks about the injustices of the justice system and then close the door on me and Garrett's faces when we ask for scraps to provide educational opportunities for people in prison. These, these universities will support our research budgets, but they aren't interested in actually making changes or in redistributing the millions and billions they hoard in their endowments. They don't want to accept formerly incarcerated people into their graduate schools or give people second chances. They don't want to give money back to the impoverished and exploited communities of color that literally surround many colleges and universities. And if you press them on any of that, your job is on the line. This is what Garrett was getting at in his beautiful remarks and what his case represents. These institutions, bastions of white supremacy, must be reconstituted. We all must fight to bring about this transformation. Garrett's case is just the tip of the iceberg. So once again, Garrett is a model and a warning for all of us, and not just because of what his case reveals about what we're up against, but for his generous, loving character, his phenomenal scholarship, and his relentless commitment to abolishing the carceral state and saving, people, saving people's lives and providing for their basic needs along the way. The struggle is far from over, and we must continue to stand in solidarity. May we all be more like Garrett, and may we use his case to fuel our movement for not free speech or just for free speech, but for complete liberation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for your remarks and for giving a larger context to what it is we're talking about by going all the way from the extraordinary scholarship that Garrett Felber has done and that all of us are compelled to do because it matters that we get things right and too many people can be hurt if we get things wrong. And by contextualizing that within the context of the institutions where we work, you formerly at Harvard, richer than most nation states on the planet, I work, on the sec I work at the second largest public urban institution in North America, second only to UNAM in size, half a million students, 
no endowment to speak of, and yet the struggles are connected. I'd also like to take this moment to have a moment in which we hold in our hearts those we've lost recently or even years ago. So many people have passed because of COVID. So many people are threatened because of it and also because of lousy or non-existent healthcare and insurance. And Elizabeth mentioning the passing of Manning also reminds me that Leith Mullins, his life partner, passed a week ago as well. So all of those people are present with us tonight. Our next speaker is Kianga Taylor. Kianga, take it away. Hey there. Um, I also uh, would like to thank Haymarket, the um, American Studies Association, for um, very quickly pivoting um, to put this program together. Um, so I have, I have. I want to say a couple of, of uh, things about the situation um, because I think that uh, its impact um, and its potential reverberations are uh, quite consequential for um, many of us who not just are involved in politics beyond the campus, but see uh, the campus itself as a site of uh, political struggle, um, as, a, as a site of uh, contradiction in all the ways that um, Elizabeth talked about. I met Garrett uh, for the first time, I think a year ago, um, at the uh, Conference on Mass Incarceration um, in uh, Mississippi. Um, we had been uh, in touch uh, before that, but that was the the first occasion uh, of of meeting, and that conference, um, in many ways, was unbelievable. It was unbelievable uh, in terms of the breadth of people that it brought together from uh, around the country, but within the state, uh, in terms of the the range of um, academics, activists. Uh, people who are deeply implanted in um, organizing and activism around uh, uh, the politics of, of prison, mass incarceration, policing, uh, and community struggles um, more generally. Um, but also the fact that this was happening uh, in Mississippi, uh, the poorest state in the United States, uh, a state uh, whose reputation uh, precedes it in terms of uh, its legacy of racism and brutality. Uh, and so for uh, Garrett to be at the center uh, of organizing in terms of pulling um, those different community facets together uh, with the university itself um, was remarkable in and of itself. But I think that uh, for those of us who do know, um, who have been involved in organizing and politics, um, it was also pretty clear uh, that this would put him in the crosshairs uh, of the, the, the university. Um, and I, I think that uh, Mariam Kaba 
who was at the conference uh, essentially alluded to um, to the consequences that might come from this kind of organizing. And so I wanted to say something um, about that in terms of uh, the, in some ways, the changing character um, of universities as corporate entities uh, and what this means for those of us who are uh, not just part of, of, of movements and struggles beyond uh, campuses, but see movements and struggles as, uh, a, a, as, as things to study, as things to, uh, uh, to delve much uh, more deeply um, into. On the one hand, I think that the corporatization um, of universities and colleges uh, today um, threatens to distort the relationship between uh, colleagues. So there are really two things that I want to talk about. One is this distorted relationship uh, between uh, colleagues. And I bring this up um, because the nature of Garrett's dismissal um, to me is particularly concerning and egregious. Uh, humanities departments um, like to uh, congratulate themselves uh, on their egalitarianism, which is often expressed through uh, this notion of shared governance, um, that departments uh, are not like traditional workplaces, that we make collective decisions in hiring, we make collective decisions in stewarding uh, 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 departments uh, themselves, um, we make collective decisions about curricula, um, that the entire endeavor uh, is, a, is in many ways supposed to reflect a kind of uh, collective effort um, at pulling something uh, together. And in this case, uh, you have um, the chair uh, of the history department making a categorical decision unto herself uh, to fire uh, Garrett Felber. Um, and I think that the distortion uh, is one that reflects the worst abuses that we hear about in corporate America, uh, where in typical situations, chairs um, of departments are not your employer. Uh, they're not your boss. They're not your manager. Chairs are colleagues who have undertaken a specific set of responsibilities uh, for a period of, of time, um, but that they are also a part of this collective process of running uh, a department. And in this case, that whole notion of shared governance, of collaboration, of collectivity, all of the things that this chair perniciously accuses Garrett of, she is most in violation of um, unilaterally making a decision with no collaboration, uh, without any context, without any collective decision-making uh, to terminate the employment of Felber um, literally weeks after lauding him uh, for his outstanding performance 
uh, for the year, for celebrating his accomplishments um, for the year. This is uh, 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 this kind of um, behavior uh, takes the worst abuses that we see in corporate America uh, and brings them into the heart uh, of the university. The second thing, because I know I'm I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm short on time here, um, but I wanted to put that into the larger context of what this corporatization of universities um, means uh, in terms of the the context within which these distorted relationships between colleagues uh, take place, which is when you have uh, at state schools in particular in an atmosphere where education is being degraded, as it is across this entire country, uh, that degradation leads to budget cuts. And budget cuts leave universities vulnerable uh, to having to search out the dollars to be able uh, uh, to, um, to function. And so what we have then, and that in and of itself creates uh, an atmosphere um, where uh, uh, university presidents and administrators are on the search for funds, for funding streams, and for dollars. And when that situation happens, there is a pressure uh, to create a conflict-free university, to eschew politics, uh, to basically uh, create uh, an atmosphere without controversy, um, to show that, uh, uh, to, to prove and practice uh, that the university is worthy uh, of donations and dollars. And of course, that creates the kind of uh, atmosphere and situation in which politics is most necessary, in which activism is most necessary, in which conflict and confrontation are most necessary. Um, because with all of the efforts that university administrators and presidents go uh, to, in an effect, to try to show uh, uh, their campuses as worthy of accepting donations, as, as conflict-free uh, um, spaces, we know that uh, campuses are workplaces. They are sites of employment. They are sites of uh, contradiction, of oppression, of exploitation. Uh, and these uh, uh, contradictions uh, are deserving of protest and struggle and organizing. Um, and so I think that this is the, uh, these are situations that are unfolding and happening um, on campuses across uh, the country. This dynamic of uh, corporatization, what some refer to as the neoliberalization of college campuses is not new, but it is intensifying uh, at a point, uh, at a moment where um, the state is come becoming less involved and less invested in um, less involved and less invested in public education. Uh, and so these sorts of uh, conflicts and confrontations between uh, the employing class on campuses uh, and faculty that have the audacity to talk back, um, the audacity to speak up uh, are becoming much more sharp and much more intense. Uh, And so not only do we need to stand in solidarity with Garrett, um, because Garrett is all of us, 
we all have the potential uh, to fall into the crosshairs uh, of administrators who want us to be quiet um, and who want us to, to sit down. Uh, this is also exemplary of fundamental dynamics that are unfolding on campuses uh, across this country. Um, and we should heed the warning that is being uh, put before us. Um, and we should take up the call uh, to continue to organize and to stand up to this kind uh, of rank, outrageous uh, behavior, both on a department level, uh, but on the university level as a whole. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kianga. Um, I want to take this opportunity, this interlude, to thank our excellent closed captioner, Jordan Mucha. Thank you, Jordan. I'm sorry I missed your name earlier. And I also wanted to lift up uh, a point that has come up again and again and again from Garrett, from Elizabeth, from Kianga, and that is the global maldistribution of material and symbolic resources. That's the way Stuart Hall put what we're living through today. So it's not only, as Kianga was just saying, uh, an organizational problem that somehow colleges and universities have become quote unquote corporatized. It's also a problem of that defines their purpose and therefore the internal culture. And in the context of that, what's happened with many students, with millions and millions of students throughout the United States, whether at trade tech schools, community colleges, four-year schools, um, public universities or private universities, mid-level or elite, is that they are subjected to being transformed into customers on the one hand, and yet being sources for um, extraction of borrowed money as well as earned money on the other hand. I would like to now move to our next um, speaker who has sent us a recorded message and that is Sherry Randolph. So John, if you would cue Sherry. Hi, I'm Sherry Randolph. I'm a professor at Georgia Tech um, and the director of the Black Feminist Think Tank. It is unfortunate that we have to be here today to make a solidarity statement on behalf of Garrett Felber, who was recently terminated from the University of Mississippi's history department. But here we are. On behalf of the Black Feminist Think Tank that I co-chair with Erica Edwards, we want to resoundingly voice our support uh, for Garrett Felber and his efforts to create a space in the academy that centers justice. Garrett's termination from the University of Mississippi is an attack on carceral studies. It's an attack on Black studies. It's an attack on academic freedom writ large. It's important to recognize that with all that said, that Garrett would have sailed through the tenure process, but he wasn't given any due process. He didn't go up for tenure. That's really important. Uh, he was just fired by his chair, received an email, and the justification was that she couldn't get hold of him, which is ridiculous. This is, it sounds crazy. And so we can infer that the real reason that he was fired was because he criticized racism at the university. Garrett's work is vitally necessary. I mean, I've said that and I'll 
everyone continues to say this. People see his work. People know who Garrett is because his work is so important if, you, if you're in, at all involved in Black studies and history. So I'm reminded of the words of Toni Morrison, and I quote, the very serious uh, function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. And in this case, the very serious function is we have to keep explaining the importance of carceral studies, keep explaining the importance of black liberation studies, keep explaining the importance of doing work and connecting uh, uh, former prisons and prisoners to this work and why it is especially important in the state of Mississippi, right? It forces faculty at Ole Miss, Garrett's colleagues, uh, his interlocutors across the, the nation to keep explaining why this is uh, uh, a violation of academic freedom, right? And it wastes our time, right? It wastes Garrett's time where he could be working on his award-winning books, collecting archive, raising more money for abolitionist studies, right? I want to say, I want to end by saying that Garrett, I want to speak directly to Garrett. Garrett, you are not alone. Um, We support you like other scholars. I will not, I won't even travel to Mississippi. How about that? But I will not uh, uh, support any projects at the University of Mississippi, do any talks at the University of Mississippi until there's a full accounting of your dismissal, until you're reinstated. And now I want to speak directly to other scholars and to anyone like Garrett who's facing repression in their college, university, or workspace. You are not alone. We see you and we love you. Thank you. Thank you, Sherry Randolph. I could not hear Sherry's remarks, so I will tell you that Sherry is an associate professor at Georgia Tech, and uh, she used to teach up at the University of Michigan, which is where I think a lot of these uh, comrades met some time ago. Um, before I go to our next speaker, who has also sent a pre-recorded uh, message, I'd like to point out or lift up really something that Garrett said in his uh, opening remarks. And he mentioned in passing and yet emphasized with his voice that Mississippi is the site of the largest single ice raid ever. And that ice raid was in the more or less in the Jackson region. And uh, it happened uh, overlapping a parish where an old friend of mine, someone I've known forever, one of those radical Catholic priests who has worked in changing Mississippi for decades and decades and decades, uh, was the pastor of the community of people who were taken in the ice raid. And therefore, he and his... um, uh, co-workers had to figure out a way to take care of all the children who came home from school to find they had no parents or adults anymore in their lives, at least for that moment. And that, of course, describes so perfectly the experience of organized violence that shapes organized abandonment for vulnerable people throughout the United States, people who make their livings growing, moving, uh, making and caring for things and other people. 
They are the essential workers. And it is people like those people who are right now doing essential work who find themselves because they've been put in prisons and detention centers and their children are adrift. Now we're going to turn to a um, pre-recorded statement uh, from our colleague, Lorgia Garcia-Pena. And John, if you would cue that, we will start. Garrick Felber stood against the corporate white supremacist settler colonialist university. And in return, the university flexes oppressive muscle and attempted without success to punish, discipline, and silence him. A colossal mistake. For all they accomplished was to shed light on its own corruption and hypocrisy. And more importantly, to wake up and rally Armstrong with you, Garrett. For we recognize you. We see you for the giant that you are. We see the work you have done, and more importantly, the work that you have yet to do. And we support you. We fight with and for you. And we want you to know that you're not alone in this fight, for this is not just yours, it's our fight. The university for far too long now has been using its structures to weed out those of us who dissent, who do not behave, who do not play the rigged game they referee, all while exploiting a narrative of racial inclusivity and diversity, a narrative of justice and fairness at the expense of the very people deserving such justice and fairness. Students and faculty of color, first-generation students, custodial staff, the community around campus, and the people, communities, and cultural production we study, write, and teach about. The hypocrisy of the corporate university, the distance that exists between its discourses and its practices, needs to be confronted. And we're here, ready to do so, following your great example, Garrett. Thank you for the lessons. We stand with you in power. Okay, thank you, Professor Garcia Pena, for your uh, participation in tonight's event. We have one more scheduled speaker before we open up for discussion and perhaps if time allows some questions from the audience. And that is a person I met at the great conference that um, Elizabeth and Kianga and I attended a year ago in Mississippi. And that's Kiese Lehman. Kiese? All right. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? All right. Thank you so much, Ruthie. Um, 
I'm going to try to be brief today, y'all, and um, make a lot of time for conversation if we if we can have it. Uh, my name is Kiese Lehman. Um, I was born and raised in Jackson, Mississippi. I came to the University of Mississippi as a full professor five years ago. Um, I think it's important in this conversation to deal with the real and to deal with the speculative. Um, I got kicked out of the most quote unquote liberal school in Mississippi in 1995 for taking a library book out of the library without checking it out. Went to Jackson State University after that. After that, I went to Oberlin and I wanted to come home ever since I left. I got tenure at Vassar College and I needed Mississippi and University of Mississippi offered me a position there after I had a fellowship and I took the uh, endowed position. I took the position knowing not only that that university um, and the white folk who run that university have never in the history of my mother or my life done right without being pushed. I took that job um, knowing that my black friends had gone to the University of Mississippi either as students or law school students and or faculty and saw so much destruction that they could not deal and left. I came back to the University of Mississippi knowing full well that someone like Garrett Felber could get fired as an assistant. And I came back to the University of Mississippi because after having spent time at Indiana, at Iowa, at Oberlin, at Vassar, I had never met the students, um, what we call like organic intellectual students who were so committed to not just making that institution better, but making, making our state better. I didn't expect that. I also didn't expect to see so many, particularly like black faculty who had given their lives to what we call the struggle at the University of Mississippi and who had to fight against the same administration that I think unfairly terminated Garrett. I, 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 I watched these people talk to me about their experiences and I felt a connection to those people. And what I wanna do y'all in this little time I have left is I wanna just switch the optic a bit. Um, for those who don't understand what's happening at the University of Mississippi, um, the president of the University of Mississippi is a guy named uh, Chancellor Boyce. Chancellor Boyce used to head the IHL, Institution of Higher 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 Learning. That's sort of like our board of board of directors or board of trustees at University of Mississippi. This man ran the IHL between what 18, 19, uh, 2015, 2017, 2000, 2020, 2018, or something like that. This man oversaw the placement of two of the worst presidents Jackson State University has ever seen. What I want everybody to understand is like the footprints of anti-blackness and how what happened to Garrett is so, 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 so personal, but also so deeply rooted in a, in a, in a familiar kind of anti-blackness. He put two presidents in at Jackson State University, the place where I was born, the place where my mother spent all of her life as a professor. Those presidents did an abysmal amount of damage to that institution. He was rewarded for that. And I think he was rewarded for that because that's what he was supposed to do. 
he then became the headhunter for the presidency, the vacant presidency at the University of Mississippi, the headhunter. He went out and interviewed people who could potentially be presidents, right? We have to ask ourselves, how many of those people were actually thoughtful, loving, potentially caring women, genderqueer folk, black folk? What this man did and what the IHL encouraged him to do, which means the government, the governor of my state encouraged him to do, was make himself the headhunter. He became the president, right? One of the things Garrett got called out for and ultimately disciplined for because Garrett thought that was wrong. Garrett thought that them grabbing students up and taking them out of the the protest was wrong. So he fought that and he fought it really, really hard. And as as he fought that, a lot of us who know Mississippi knew what was going to come to Garrett. And this is what I really want to talk about, y'all. This might not be the place, but it's possible that if I started my my college professional career at the University of Mississippi and I had to deal with all of the fucking landmines one has to deal with living in Mississippi and dealing with like absolutely mediocre, incompetent leadership, that when I saw a, a Garrett come in, if I somehow earn tenure, I might look at a Garrett with extreme, extreme, extreme hesitance. I might see a slice of the same sort of like uh, despicable white power that had, makes me have to man- manage and, 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 and get all through to, to tenure. I might see Garrett in that. If I, speculatively, right? If I had gone through all of the shit people, black folks had to go through that. And what this situation has has really sort of made me understand is, one, I I actually do care and love Garrett. I actually do care and love a lot of the people in African-American studies at Vassar, right? I mean, I'm sorry, at <laughs> University of Mississippi. But somehow something didn't work right. And what I want to say is that that somehow, that, that shit that we might reduce to personalities and whatnot, who benefits from that? The only beneficiary is white racial heteropatriarchy supremacy. The only specific beneficiary is the, is the chancellor boys. The only beneficiary of Mississippi faculty, black faculty particularly, and white faculty not working together as hard as we can to fight this shit is the power that makes particularly black students and black faculty and black staff, which I think is most important, suffer. So Without talking too much out of turn, I want to say that what we see happen to Garrett and what the fallout has been at my institution has every single thing to do with white racial supremacy, has everything to do with the fact that a lot of black faculty at that institution should not trust, should not trust white folk who come in. But I guarantee who come in and, and want to fight, you know, that shit has to be worked on. That shit has to be cultivated. Right. But what we but what we can never do, y'all. And I'm speaking to like my colleagues, my people I love. We can never, ever side with the most powerful, most mediocre, most invested in black suffering white man possible ever under any circumstances. We do not defend white folk who have us, our grandparents, our great grandparents, our children who like feed off of the suffering of that, no matter what we've been through. And on the flip side, If you are someone who comes into these institutions and you see these black folk who appear to be, you know, according to your perspective, possibly again, this is speculative. I'm a a fiction writer. You know, some people who are wholly in line with the institution, who walk step in step, who are just happy to have a job. 
I think those of you young professors, young faculty members, young activists who want to, you know, work and fight because that is your life's work. The most important part of that life's work might be in trying to find communion with those black folk who have had to make it in spite of the same shit that eventually might get you up out of there. So I'm saying things that appear to be possibly controversial, appear to be maybe like convoluted. But at the end of the day, y'all, Chancellor Boyce, the worst of white folk, the worst of the University of Mississippi, have had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things where we should have come together and said, no more. We ain't come to that school. We ain't given our money. And actually, if you live there like me, I think there have been so many instances just when I've been there where I should have said, yo, I'm walking if. And, you know, I said it now, but it's too late. But I think we would have come to that earlier had we not let the specter of this wholly abusive, heteropatriarchal, like white supremacist fucking club dictate so much of how that university moved before Garrett got there and possibly after. I'm so thankful that people in this country have come together to try to make that institution right for those young kids, for the staff, for junior faculty. But I still think that we need to be honest about the mistakes we've made that have made it so we have to call on outside people to get this administration to do right. Do you know? I came there as a full professor because I was afraid to come there as a junior professor. I was afraid to come there as a junior professor because my mama and my grandmama didn't want me to live. I'm going to leave that motherfucker as a full professor because my mama and my grandmama didn't want me to live. And I just want to, again, thank the black faculty members who have been there before me, who made a way. If I've been at all disrespectful to y'all, um, I am wholly sorry. I want to thank a lot of the radical white folk who have put themselves out so much so that they've had to leave. I want to thank Garrett for doing this work. But I also, y'all, if you need a Cliff Notes version of what I'm trying to say, I think there's something to be learned here for all of us. For those faculty members who come into these places after people have already done the work, for junior faculty members who have like this desire to like change the world and see you sometimes see like black faculty members as just like minions of, of the man. For those black faculty members who've been there forever, who actually are fucking tired and might not want to fight. This, if anything, is like the 300th call, but I think we can get it right. So thank you all for helping the most incredible part of Mississippi deal with the most insatiably addicted to abuse part of Mississippi. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. But at some point, we of Mississippi are gonna have to do the hard work to sit down, to talk, and to say, what are we willing to give up and what are we willing to swing to get the best of our state back? And that might mean the dismantling of all that the University of Mississippi has made itself into. Thank you. Thank you, Fiance. I think we should all take a moment and think about where we've come in our short time together. We've come back to where we started. And what we see so far is where we find ourselves is where we have to work and struggle, but it has to be there. 
as Kiese said, not abstractly somewhere, but there. And the there radiates all over the place because people and ideas and power structures and movements radiate as well. And I was thinking as I listened to Kiese speaking about how a kind of similar struggle is happening over and over again related to the question of whether new jails or fresh prisons will be more humane and livable and less deadly than the old jails and prisons that are killing people for all kinds of reasons, medical neglect, the torture of being in a cage, all kinds of reasons. And we find in many places, including I think in Mississippi, that people, some people who experience an understanding through struggle in living through those places and systems have embraced the idea that a new prison, a fresh jail will be an improvement and are going to the wall for that against those who, whatever their experience, say there is no such thing as a good prison or jail. And I'm thinking about how all of what we're talking about tonight is, as Kiese said, the 300th call. This is the 300th call to try to get things right, whether it's about the University of Mississippi, about the state of Mississippi, about the way that the United States has produced vulnerability to premature death in so many ways that, for example, my brother Kiesi Lehman's mother and grandmother were concerned whether he could live living there or would live better somewhere where he couldn't be with them. The 300th call. So at this moment, what I'd like to do is first ask Garrett, if there are any comments that you would like to share with us, you don't have to, but if you want to, that would be great. And then I would like to put a few questions to the panel. Elizabeth left, but she'll be back. Uh, so Garrett. Um, no, I don't have much to say other than to thank everyone for those comments. And I think just to, to pick up on that last point that, um, that Kiese made is just, we, we can't side with institutions. Um, these institutions are not working for us and our communities. Um, and, and we have to, to collectively organize, um, through the contradictions, um, as, as Kianga put it. So, um, I'm just, I'm just really grateful for the support and for the model of how to do this work, right. With integrity, um, that folks on this call and certainly all my mentors and colleagues and comrades out there have, um, have modeled for me. So let's, let us talk about what Garrett just said as a question, 
rather than a conclusion. I mean, what 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 is an institution? And I'm not asking us to get into an abstract and philosophical discussion, but rather to think really hard together about what institutions are made of, which is to say people and energy and the residue of lots of work and the possibility of more work, and then ask ourselves whether the institution or how the institution is not just a site like a box in which we struggle, it's the thing we need, perhaps, to do other things. And an institution has a kind of consciousness, the consciousness that Kiese and others have laid out for us, that that particular institution, the, Insti the University of Mississippi has developed, but also these institutions have changed their consciousness over time. That tells us they have their subjects of history. And it seems to me what we're trying to do is take the money and run, grab the resources that we can use, always mindful of the peril that any day the gate might come down and we can't do it again the next day. So I'd love it if anybody would like to um, take up the challenge of thinking about the institution as something, not that we work inside to reform reformistly, but as a mass and potential of resources that we can use at least tentatively for other things. Anybody like to speak to that? Kianga, could I ask you? Um, I mean, if I think it's along, you know, it's along the lines of of what we have been talking about, um, which is how uh, there's a way I think that we can certainly as students, you know, we were all students at a university before we were faculty um, at a university. And there's a way in which uh, you try to imagine uh, this particular kind of institution as something different um, than it actually is. And it's always uh, a rude awakening when you realize that, you know, the university is not this um, egalitarian space of ideas and self-discovery, um, but that it's a, it's a, it's not just a business. It's a, it is an institution and it has all sorts of institutional qualities. I remember my uh, first, you know, I had a, I had a weird, uh, trajectory, uh, through school. Um, I'm a, a, a two-time, uh, college dropout. And by my third institution, I was at a working class commuter school, um, called Northeastern, uh, Illinois University in Chicago. And, you know, 
I was working 40 hours a week and I was a full-time student and I loved to walk through the middle of campus because it made me feel like I was something other than working full-time and going to school full-time. Um, and then I remember getting into, uh, I was organizing on campus and I remember getting into a confrontation with uh, the administration over what they called a free speech zone um, on campus where they had, you know, a little piece of the middle of the campus where the quote unquote activists had permission to be uh, and could talk to other students um, about politics. And, you know, this turned into uh, a huge issue uh, on campus where, you know, I was part of some socialist club that uh, the administration then tried to, to ban. There were other students who were protesting the presence of the FBI and ICE um, on, on campus at these career, you know, things where people are looking for work. And it was really, you know, in moments um, like that, that you realize that this is not just some, uh, as you say, uh, Ruthie, some abstract location where we ponder the meaning of life and pontificate about uh, ideas. I mean, there is some of that, which is important. I mean, that 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 is why schools are important and classes and you know, the whole reason many people go to college is to think differently um, and is to try to be differently. Um, but there's a, a constant reminder um, that this place is like every other place. And every other place, there is no contradiction with the idea that uh, we have to fight to make it what we want. Um, and, you know, there are moments that happen uh, like this. Um, these kinds of situations. I'm good friends with George Chicarielo Mayer, um, you know, who's was fired from uh, his, he wasn't fired. He was sort of forced out uh, for talking about uh, racism and, and the growth of the, the, the white right um, in this, in this country. And so there, there are periodic reminders that, um, the college college campuses reflect uh, the best and the worst of our society, um, and that uh, these are sites of, of of politics, but most importantly, political struggle. Uh, and sometimes that means that we have to struggle with each other. And in the same way that uh, social movements require not just the focus, the focal point on what it is that we are attacking. But is how do we build the kind of movement that is necessary to be effective? And, and how do we develop solidarity uh, before the crisis so that when the crisis un, uh, un, is unleashed, that we actually have the political forces developed and built up to successfully confront them? And that's difficult to do because those contradictions that we talk about um, on the campus, work to drive people apart. Uh, you know, they work to um, to separate uh, uh, to people. It, I mean, the academy in and of itself is a very individual, uh, driven, um, isolating, alienating profession um, where, 
you know, collaboration and collectivity uh, is something that we strive for, but can be difficult to uh, to attain. And so crises create stress and pressure. Uh, and so, you know, these are these are all things to be mindful of and aware of. And and, you know, it matters what we do between the, the, the crises. And I think that that is as important now as it's ever been, because for all of the right wing bullshit about uh, snowflakes and, you know, uh, the, um, you know, the campus is all teeming with left wingers and right wingers can't say what they think. And they're being that's nonsense. That's nonsense. This is the real dynamic. You might have a few left-wing people in some humanities fields or whatever, but the the real scenario on these campuses is that the right dominate, and you know it creates uh, a tremendous amount of pressure and stress uh, for people who think differently and who have different ideas, and so. All of that is just to say that we have to be organized and we have to figure out how to navigate uh, the, the political tensions and stresses, but also um, to cut against the alienating, isolating, atomizing atmosphere that is the academy in the first place and that undermines our ability to come together uh, to transform these institutions. And that, you know, that's part of the lesson um, that, that we have to extract from this and other situations like it. And it's the challenge that we face um, during a, a period in which the right absolutely focused and oriented on breaking whatever there is of a left on campuses. So we, we have to be aware of that and, and responsive to it. I think what you say is true. And I want to pick up something that um, Kiese said. Um, I think it was in, at the very beginning of your remarks and you talked, you said uh, students and faculty, and then you paused and said, and staff. Now, I grew up in a college town and my extended family worked at the university as staff, as janitors, as machinists, as lab technicians, as, you know, ran the clubs for the elites to go to as managers, staff. Um, could you uh, perhaps speak a little more expansively about what you were thinking about? Uh, absolutely. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you too for Keith's, uh, every time I want anything with Keong, I just be like trying to take them notes. So I kind of forget that I'm <laughs> supposed to be talking a little bit. Uh, I was talking primarily about, um, you know, I'm talking primarily about, I think in the nation of which Mississippi is a part, I think white folk and white folk with power love black labor and, and do everything possible to make sure that that black labor does not turn into black power. And Mississippi University of Mississippi, you can see that clearly. You don't even need analysis. The economic engine of that school are the black athletic laborers, uh, black athletic stu student laborers who bring the majority of money into that institution. You know, um, we know that. 
Um, and, 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 and also they make it so people like me who live in Oxford can, can like, you know, like the price of the house goes up. I can rent my house out for more if those primarily black workers are out there working. And so I'm trying to say that in a state like ours, which was once the blackest state in, a, in the union, which was once the richest state in the union because of cotton, which is still the blackest state in the union and the poorest state in the union. I think when we talk about these things, whether it's monuments coming down or, you know, people shooting up Emmett Till signs, particularly when the shit happens on campus, I'm really concerned about the majority of, you know, black women and usually a lot of black people and majority black women who work in these buildings who can work full time and still be living close to poverty. And so that's not me just throwing on an addendum. You know what I'm saying? Like my grandmama did and does that work. And so, like, I just want to make sure in my state, which, again, is obsessed with, like, lavishing themselves and, like, couturement of, like, black labor, but is in, but will do everything fucking power to make sure that black labor never has organized collective black power. We got to start with the folks who are actually, like, cleaning up the motherfucking classrooms before and after we get in there. Ain't no ain't no talk of a working wage at the University of Mississippi. Ain't no motherfucking talk of unions. For the people to actually clean the, the bathrooms, clean the shit from these motherfuckers vomiting, from me pissing wherever I want to piss. And so, again, what I'm saying sounds all, I, I think it, it sounds all hunky-dory, but, but what I'm, <laughs> like, 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 we're not all the same kind of worker. But if we talk about labor and we don't center, I think the majority of black women who, 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 who really, real talk, keep that institution going. And we don't see that connected to what my grandmama had to go through, what her grandmama had to go through. And again, what those majority black boys on that field have to go through, making all that money and, and being told you are because you got a scholarship. The same thing that the, that the tennis player or the same thing that the guy who plays cello who, you know, really well, well, you know, you should be happy you got a scholarship. I'm just trying to say that in my in my state and in that part of the and in that part of the state, particularly, we have to remember black, black labor, like black labor. And we have to ask ourselves, why is this institution that is alive because of black labor? Black folk built that shit and black folk, black athletic geniuses, black athletic student geniuses sustain that shit. And then here we go, having a mediocre white man fire a white boy because real talk, it it appears that he likes niggas too much. Fuck that shit. Sometimes you just got to call it, call it like it is. And it's not even the thing about this thing. It's like it, it defies analysis. And that's what's so wonderful about the University of Mississippi. You don't have to do analysis, fam. You just got to describe that shit and hope that you can organize around that description with the awareness that organizing around that description has led to many people losing their lives, their health and their relationship with sanity. So it's like, it's like, what do you do? Do you fight and potentially lose all your shit or do you stay and lose all your shit? And, and I don't know, but that's where I feel like we are. And I feel like we have to start with the actual workers who fucking clean the shit up that we don't want to clean up every day. And the majority of those workers that I know happen to be black women. Amen. Amen. Can I just add to that, Ruthie? I mean, so yeah. I think part of to bo- to both of your comments, right? Like part of the work that I f- that I felt was most necessary and that I took pride in during my during my very brief time down there was that it was coalitional work, right? So it wasn't about organizing faculty. It was about fac- me as a faculty organizing everything I did with staff, 
with students, with people off campus, with people on campus. Because to, to Ruthie's question about what are these institutions, if we think of them in institutionalized logics, we get into the atomized hierarchical thinking that Kianga is talking about, and we reproduce those logics. We say, oh, we got to organize our department or our faculty, or, or it's all these liberal, you know, atomized logics about individual rights. And it's not about community organizing. It's not about coalitional work. And I think for the for us thinking about the University of Mississippi, we have to see it as the state. It is the state. The, the politics of that place, everything, the state is attacking me right now, and, and it is driven by the state. And so the work that I do with incarcerated people in Mississippi, I think is very connected to what Kiesa is talking about, about thinking about black women and black labor, right? So when, when we're starting to organize Mississippi communities, because study and struggle is not just the campus is not even primarily the campus. It's organizing with Pauline Rogers, formerly incarcerated woman with Reach Foundation. It's organizing with Lorena Kiros, who's with, you know, the Immigrant Alliance um, for Equity and Justice that comes out of the ICE raids. That's the organizing that comes out of that. It's organizing with Rakia Lumumba, who Kiesa was generous enough to introduce me to, right? So it's the second that you start putting together a coalition that challenges the way they want to organize the institution, the way they want to make it into individualized hierarchical relationships that are about um, me publishing my books, black women doing predominantly um, manual labor as staff, right? All of these sort of things that they want to organize. When we start organizing it as a coalition, and when, I mean, we have a wall-to-wall union on the campus and it's been in, it's been difficult to organize in that way because the institution of course is set up to prohibit that sort of thing. So I think I just, I wanna pick up on a couple of those threads and just say that it is about building coalition and seeing the resources of the institution, which we often think of as financial. And honestly, the resources of most of these institutions are the people. It's organizing the people because you have students who are active, engaged, they want to learn. You have staff who want to change their work environments and fight for for a better wage in Mississippi. You have faculty who see the fucked up shit that's going on and and are tired of trying to move a, a monument to white supremacy that sits at the very front of the campus year after year after year. And so once you start trying to organize those folks, that's that's when I think the institution is really challenged is doing that coalitional work that stops atomizing everyone and making this about, you know, my academic freedom or their particular labor rights. It's about seeing the sort of intersections of those things. That's exactly what I hoped somebody was going to say. And Kiese, when you were talking about how just looking and describing things is where to start, that is exactly, in my view, where organizing starts. You look at where you're at, see what's going on, and to the extent possible, organize with people who are already organized because they know something about it and also have built some infrastructure that then people can uh, build on. So you mentioned Rukia, who comes from a whole line of people organizing in Mississippi, as well as newer organizers. But who knows what the long history is for people who are organizing as a result of the ice raids? I mean, there are there are all the hidden histories of organizing that every so often come up when people are pushed to act. This is exactly the thing to do. I got an email 
from one of my graduate students who was very upset, a former graduate student who's now an assistant professor, who was very upset by what happened, uh, Garrett, and uh, was trying to figure out if she could make some kind of argument that had something to do with academic freedom. And I said, don't even waste your time. Don't go out on that limb with a saw in your hand and this words or phrase, academic freedom in your mouth, hoping that when you saw that limb off, the words are going to cushion your fall to the ground. They won't. That is not how it's done. I grew up in a household, as I said, where people worked as staff at universities, multiple generations. They were all organizers, local 34, local 35. They organized, organized, organized. And that is the answer to, I think, every question that has come in uh, from our viewers. They want to know what about how to be in solidarity with graduate students who might be studying things that are are, are too far to the left in social justice. They should study what they're going to study and organize with people who are organized. They don't have to become organizers, but they have to be organized. We do have to be organized. Um, the same with classes. Uh, while it is true that the post, the, the well, whatever you call it, uh, neo-liberal university uh, has elevated individualism to a new level of isolation. I used to call individualism the highest stage of separatism, and it is. It's also true that a whole lot of the work that people do in very standard university classrooms is collective, whether it's the lively arts or science labs people do things together as well as compete with each other. So taking the elements of collective work into and through classrooms, wherever they are, is another way for us to use the resources of the university to do other things. I run studio courses, for example, at my school, the City University of New York, where people will take on pressing issues not to tell people in communities what to do, but to make common cause, make resources within the university available to communities and to figure out what kinds of things people can make while students are learning the skills they came to school to learn. They should learn their skills, but the skills should be useful. That's how I you know, how I was trained myself. And anyone who's got any kind of autonomy in determining courses, so this is not everybody, can run courses like that. I know you can do it at Princeton. I certainly do it at the City University of New York. I don't know about the University of Mississippi, but it's a possibility. All right, so if, uh, since we're down to our last couple of minutes, I would love to hear closing Remarks, thoughts from anybody, starting just very briefly, Kianga, then Kiese, and then Garrett, and then we'll say goodnight. I don't have much to add. I think that where you just ended there um, was really important. Um, I do want to, you know, extend again my support and solidarity with you, Garrett. Um, this is it's particularly uh, terrible. Um, to happen over uh, the holidays in the midst of a global pandemic. 
um, there's something particularly vicious uh, about that. And so, um, you know, we're at the very beginning uh, of this, um, but I just want to extend you, you know, all the solidarity, support and, and love uh, through this, this situation and that we're, we're all going to be in this together. So um, I'll, I'll end with that. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, um, Kianga. Um, and thank you, Ruthie. And man, thank you, Haymarket, for making this happen. Thank you, Garrett, for not going in a hole when a lot of this shit happened. I, I, I want to thank um, one of my colleagues who was at the University of Mississippi before I got there, who did, who has been doing and will continue to do amazing um, work in incarceration, uh, Dr. Patrick Alexander. I just want to say that Patrick was doing a lot of the work um, that I have built on since I came there. And I think that Garrett also built on in different ways since he's been there. So I just want to thank people who are on the ground doing that work. And then the last thing I want to say, y'all, this probably goes without saying, but while Mississippi is part of the nation and and, and what and it is often a scapegoat and, and, and people people sometimes don't see what, what's happening in their neighborhood is happening in Mississippi. On one hand, I hope everybody understands what's happening here is happening everywhere. But on the flip side, I just want, because we've seen it happen so much, there is no attempt to convince these people. When you're dealing with the worst of white folk, the way we have been dealing with in our state since the beginning of time, you beat them or you don't beat them. There's no there's no convincing, can we get so-and-so to convince? No, it's like, how do we beat them? And I just think we need to understand that. This ain't no neoliberal blah, 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 blah. This is some neoconservative shit. You beat them and you beat them and you beat them. And when they're beaten, they come back harder. And if we think what happened to Garrett doesn't have anything to do with these supposed victories in our state, the flag coming down, the monument coming down and all of this shit, please, they will come back harder. But we have to beat them and we cannot beat them unless we find ways to radically love up on each other. If we don't do that, it's a wrap. So thank you. Um, yeah, final comments. Um, I mean, thank you to everyone for for the support that goes far before this, you know, panel and far after. Um, and I think, you know, I want to recognize that the fallout of this um, is really f far reaching, right? Like, it's not. This is not just happening to me and affecting my family and my ability to, you know, care for my kid and deal with other things that we're dealing with and my colleagues there, right. Who are trying to piece together a department in the aftermath of this. Um, the, the students that I work with, you know, I mean, we're going to keep doing the work in Mississippi. We're going to amp it up. Um, I can tell you that, but to think that this does not, that this ends with me, you know, is a mistake. Um, this has ripple effects. And I think the reason people are so outraged is the, the precedent that it possibly sets. So the reason we need to organize and fight back is not is not just for me and it's not just for those people that it's rippled to so far, but it's so it doesn't ripple further. And what I've been trying to do uh, this last week, at least, is find the spaces that we can use a crisis to organize because a crisis is always a moment where we can organize um, and and the people who have donated to study and struggle, the people who have just heard about it for the first time and learned of this work, um, who maybe, you know, didn't care about Mississippi last week and now do whatever that is, you know, 
Um, Because the thing that happens with Mississippi and and Kiesa knows this way, way better than I do, is it gets flattened and it gets exceptionalized at the same time. So people say, oh, Mississippi, goddamn. And they and they just leave it like it's and they don't understand that there is the most radical organizing happening in Mississippi all the time and that the people who I am organizing with, I'm organizing from them, learning from them in that tradition and that the people who hate that and who are behind this attack, they are also a part of Mississippi, but they are not near the whole of Mississippi, okay? So so I just want us to remember that and be in solidarity with, with those folks in Mississippi who are doing the work and have been doing the work, and, and we just need to continue to build power, um, like Kiese said, and just and defeat people, because it's not, it's not a hearts and minds battle. It's an organizing battle. Right on. Well, I want to thank everybody for fantastic conversation tonight about a grim subject, but I feel very energized and I hope that other people do too. Uh, Thank you again, American Studies Association for co-sponsoring. Thank you always, Haymarket, for being a fantastic platform for bringing the debate to the planet. And because I just said planet, I want to reiterate something that Garrett and Garrett and Kiese both said. Do not think that Mississippi is flat or the past. Mississippi is actually the future that has been being made and remade by radical people on the ground in Mississippi as long as there has been Mississippi, as long as there has been the struggle there against slavery and to make abolition, which is to say to make freedom. That is where the crucible is. Bipartisanship is bullshit. I said that on YouTube and I meant it. Trying to convince the enemy to play nice is a waste of time. But let me remind you, while on the one hand, the the way that especially anti-Black racism works in the quote unquote South is don't get too high. In the North, it works, don't get too close. So we have different modalities to achieve the same murderous ends. So let's think about how people who have struggled and continue to struggle in Mississippi and beyond, enliven what the late great Clyde Woods called Mississippi and the Delta being the tail that wags the entire dog. Understand that Mississippi is connected with the world rather than outside of the world. The connection matters, how we fight matters. What we learn there matters. Thank you so much. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.